Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I am Faisa Zakaria, a scholar of Southeast Asian history and the environment at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. It is my pleasure to have with me today Carlo Kaduf, author of the monograph The Pandemic Perhaps, Dramatic Events in a Public Culture of Danger, published by University of California Press in 2015. Dr. Kaduf is a medical anthropologist researching on public health and social medicine at the intersection of science, media, and the state. He's presently an associate professor at King's College in London. Carlo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Faiza. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And this seems like a tragically appropriate time to discuss your book. So let me just give a quick introduction. Um, Dr. Kadu's book, The Pandemic Perhaps, is an ethnographic inquiry of pandemic anxieties at a historical moment when they were widely anticipated by experts but have not yet come to pass. And examining how American experts frame a catastrophe that hasn't happened yet, the book highlights the many generative ways in which the absence of a disease made preparedness a permanent project. At the same time, the book describes itself, or at that time, the book describes itself as the story of what happened when nothing really happened. But now that we're in a moment where something is happening, the book is both prescient and timely. And Carlo, maybe you can share about what prompted you to explore that uh, perhaps moment um, when the pandemic prophecies haven't yet come true. What was the situation when you did the research and how did you come to write the book? Yeah, for, for sure. So I started working on this book in 2005 when I was doing my PhD at the University of California at Berkeley. And back at the time, uh, experts were concerned with the H5N1 avian influenza virus. So, so back uh, in 2005, there was this new virus. It was spreading among birds and it was killing a lot of chicken. But it was also sometimes infecting people and killing people. But it, it was not spreading among people, so it, it never really became uh, a, a pandemic. But a lot of experts were very concerned. Um, so, so that was the time when I became interested in you know, influenza as a virus. I became interested in the problem of pandemics, I became interested in how scientists are making predictions about the future. I became interested in preparedness. So it was an important moment because at that time, a lot of resources uh, and a lot of thinking went into um, you know, all of these is- issues around pandemics, uh, viral threats, um, and, and so on. So, so that's, that's, that's how I became interested in in, in all of these issues. Right. And the interlocutors in your book um, are mainly microbiologists, as I understand it. And in a way, we can read it as an ethnography of microbiological research. How was your, how do you come up with this sort of methodology that centers on, on microbiology? And um, what are some of the memorable moments in your research? Absolutely. So, um, so, so I, I was trained in, in medical anthropology, but also in science and technology studies. 
Um, and that, that's a field that looks at uh, science as, um, um, as, 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 a, as a field producing knowledge, producing um, predictions, um, um, looking at science as, as itself a culture. So, so, so that was my kind of background. That's why I was always interested in science, in scientists, in scientific controversies, uh, in, in disagreements, in how scientists are producing evidence, in how scientists are evaluating evidence, um, and how they're making, you know, how they're informing also policy, health policy in particular. So that, so that was my background. That's, that's why I've, I, I was interested in, in the scientific dimensions of, um, of avian influence and, and, and pandemics in, in general. Now, a lot of the, um, all of the concerns around pandemic influence, and even today, the concerns around coronavirus are based on scientific evidence, are based on scientific reasoning, are based on scientific knowledge. Without and without that scientific knowledge, we wouldn't, you know, we, we wouldn't be as much concerned as, as we are today. And especially back in 2005, because there was no pandemic back then, um, it was all based on what scientists were saying and, and, and what scientists were exploring and what scientists were um, thinking about and, and, and talking about. about. So, so in order to understand what was going on, I felt like I need to work with scientists, I need to collaborate with scientists, and I need to have myself a very good understanding of the bio- biology of the virus in order to make any, you know, in order to come to any conclusions in terms of what's going on and, you know, is this a threat, is it not a threat? How can we know whether it's a threat and, and so on? So that's that's that 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 was the, the the main reason for my decision to study scientists, to work with scientists, and to collaborate with scientists. And obviously, microbiology is a crucial science because microbiology is the science of of viruses and, and bacteria. So um, I decided to do my my field work in in the United States because a lot of the scientists are based in the United States. Um, and I, I decided to work in New York. And one of the first things that I did at the beginning of my research was that I contacted a number of microbiologists, just send them an email, asking them whether they would be interested in talking to me and meeting with me. Now, one person who responded to my email was uh, uh, Dr. Peter Palese, who, who, who is um, a professor of microbiology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. So he invited me to his laboratory. So I went to his laboratory, I went to his office, um, and I started asking him questions. And the first question was a very basic and simple question, like, what do you think about the concerns around H5N1, even influenza? And I was surprised by his response because he was very explicit. And he was saying, look, there is no evidence. We can't make any predictions. It could happen, but it could also not happen. I personally think it will not happen because I've studied this virus for such a long time. And I just think I just don't think the virus has the ability to transmit among humans. And I think this is all political, and my colleagues are overdoing this. This is ex- exaggeration, um, and uh, you know it, it doesn't. It the, the, from a scientific point of view, we just can't say. Um, so that that surprised me a lot because people may not remember now, but back then everyone was saying this virus will cause the pandemic. It will kill millions of people. 
we need to start preparing now, etc., etc. And he was just someone who had a completely different opinion. And that surprised me. It surprised me both in terms of what he was saying, but also in, in, in the explicit way in which he was saying this. Right. And I, I think I think what's interesting is also um, when you talk about Dr. Palise, um, the way you describe him in the book is as a counter-prophet, if uh, I remember correctly. And that term sort of brings the idea of the blurring of uh, science and reason in a way when we deal with the possibility of sickness. And I think that seems to be a key theme in your book that is really a very useful insight because we are dealing with a moment where we don't have full information and we don't have and we are trying to grapple with the limits of science. So how, how does this play out um, in, in your study and how do your interlocutors deal with this entanglement between science and faith? That, that's a great question. It's, it's a very difficult and, and complex question because it, it plays out on a, on a whole uh, range of different levels and in, in a whole range of different discussions. So it really depends on what kind of discussion you're, you're looking at. So for instance, you could look at discussions around prioritization of um, vaccines. You could look at discussions around experimental research in, in laboratories. You could look at just predictions, disease modeling, and, and so on. So in, in all of these different contexts, you would see different ways in which this relationship between faith and, and reasoning is, is playing out. But, but the main point here is that, um, you know, science... When it comes to, to, to the future, you can, you can make predictions. But these predictions are very often based on interpretations of, of data. And the same data can, be, um, can have very different meanings and can be interpreted in very, very different ways. So in the end, it's always intuition. It's, it's always a, a leap of faith that, that is at the heart of any kind of prediction. The, the other thing that is important in the context of, um, of uh, what I'm calling a, a prophetic reasoning is that when you look at what are prophets trying to do, prophets always come with a message. Prophets always want you to do something. Prophets always want you to change the way you live. Prophecy has always been, in, in the religious context, been linked with the idea of a commandment or, or, or of a law. So it's always linked to an, it always has an ethical impetus, an ethical political impetus. A prophet um, makes a prediction and hopes that the prediction will change your way of life. And that's exactly how predictions have worked in the context of pandemic preparedness, because all of the experts who were um, predicting that a, a catastrophic event will happen, they did this in order to scare people in order to draw attention to the threat, in order to mobilize people, in order to mobilize resources, and in order to encourage the, the, the government to do preparedness, in order to avoid the event from happening. So that's, the, that's, the, that's one, one of the crucial links um, and, and one of the, the crucial reasonings, reasons why I call this um, prophecy. Right. And, and this prophecy is, I think, what's interesting is it's also not really, um, it is, it might be accepted, but it might not be widely shared. And even among microbiologists, I think uh, there would be disagreements as you've highlighted in, in your book. So how do we locate, in a way, the authority of this prophecy and, and how, did, how do we deal with this sort of uh, uncertain, uncertainty in that, in that prophecy? 
That's a great question. Now, what I would say is, of course, there are disagreements. And, and back in 2005, there were disagreements. And even today, there are disagreements. But very often, the disagreements are not public. So, so, so very often, the, the things that you hear in the public, what microbiologists say in, the pub, in public, is often very different from what they would tell you in a private conversation or the conversations that they have among themselves. So among themselves, they will have huge disagreements. But as soon as they speak publicly, they tend to, to, to have a, 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 a common view and they, they, they tend to obscure and hide disagreements. The, the second thing that happens uh, when experts are, are um, talk, you know, making public statements is that they tend to underplay the uncertainty. So, so rather than to foreground the uncertainty, they foreground the certainty and, and make things appear as if we knew what's going to happen, as if we knew what's happening, as if we could be sure what's happening. So, so it's very, very important to understand that, 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 um, that, that conversations can, can go in very different ways. Um, conversations um, are, are not necessarily the same in public as they are in private. And the other thing is that um, disagreements um, or, or people who do not reflect the so-called mainstream view are often marginalized. And that happened in, in 2005 with Peter Balaise, and that's also one of the reasons why he was interested in talking to me in the first place, because he, he felt like the New York Times and all the newspapers and everyone is listening to his colleagues who, who are making these catastrophic predictions, who are constantly invoking worst-case scenarios while someone who's trying to have a bit more of a, of a reasonable view and a, a more modest view and doesn't try to exaggerate, he doesn't have the kind of public attention and, and, and he just, people are not listening to him. So that's, I think, a, a really important point. Um, and it has to do with, you know, the, the way in which media work, the, the way in which attention is being created, the way in which... Um, you know, exaggerations will always draw more attention because they're more interesting. They're you know they 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 they're just um, more exciting than some of the other views. Right, um, and maybe in sort of to ground that in in a real example, I think one of the chapters in your book uh, deals with the H one N one outbreak in two thousand nine, and um, it was viewed, I think, this outbreak by some microbiologists as a as a fake pandemic in some ways, which didn't turn out to be quite as catastrophic as as it um, was initially predicted. So um, maybe you can sort of use this as an entry point for us to discuss um, what do you think, how, how do you find out what a pandemic means to a microbiologist? How is it defined? And, and um, what makes it uh, real to some extent? So yes, swine flu. Uh, swine flu uh, is a very interesting example because it just um, illuminates some some of the difficulties and, and complexities when it comes to infectious diseases and influenza in particular. So as as you you may remember, in two thousand and nine, this new virus um, appeared. It started to circulate in California. It was an H H one N one virus, which is the way in which it was classed. You know. To, um, classified, um, and, and it was called uh, swine flu. Uh, and it be began to circulate and then became uh, circulated across the, the globe and infected human populations and was de declared a pandemic by the WHO. Um, but back at the time, people were very scared. At the beginning of the outbreak, uh, there were a lot of concerns that millions of people might die. 
But over the over the months, it became clear that although it was a new virus, it didn't kill. It didn't kill. You know, it killed relatively few people. So, it, but by the end of the of the pandemic, it, it turned out that this pandemic of influenza killed less people than an average seasonal influenza, which which surprised many. But um, it, it, but um, it's just because the virus was not as as lethal as some some other influenza viruses. So 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 that raises a number of questions, um, and and one question is, pandemic influenza has always been defined as an event that is killing a lot of people. So pandemic influenza has always been distinguished from from seasonal influenza in the sense that seasonal influenza is the flu that is circulating every year, that is infecting every year people, and that is killing a certain number of people. But then sometimes it happens that a new influenza virus comes up, and that influenza virus is then killing millions of people, and that's what we call a pandemic. So the distinction has always been between uh, a, a virus that is that is killing a uh, few people and a virus that is killing a lot of people and that is circulating globally. Um, and, and that distinction was always based on the idea that, well, what is causing a pandemic, what is causing this huge number of deaths? Uh, microbiologists said, well, it's a new virus that is, that is appearing. People do not have immunity. So therefore, the virus is killing more people. Now, all of this makes sense. But the, the things get very, very tricky once you go in, into the details. Because the, then the question becomes, well, what counts as a new virus? So one thing that you need to know is when it comes to influenza, influenza is a virus that is mutating very fast. It's constantly changing. So the virus itself is constantly changing. It's constantly new. Every season, it has changed a little bit. And because it is changing a little bit every season, we need a new vaccine every season. Now, of course, the question comes then, well, how much change is enough change for the virus to be completely new, right? So if we say, well, a pandemic is caused by a new virus, then the question is, well, what counts as new? Because the virus is new all the time. So then you, in order to understand that, you need to look at how scientists define what is new in the context of uh, influenza. And the, the way in which they define it is, is in relation to different subtypes. So scientists came up with a different, with a specific type, typology of subtypes. So they would say, you know, there's an H1 and one, there's H2 and two, there's H5 and one. And so these names just tell you that the viruses are new and different. Now, but when you look at swine flu, swine flu was, was, was uh, identified as an H1N1 virus. Now, H1N1 virus have been circulating in the human population even before. So, so, so even in terms of subtypes, it was not a new virus. So that just shows you that the whole definition of what counts as a pandemic is a complete mess. And it's not very clear. It's, it's based on assumptions. Uh, it's based on definitions. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a new virus is going to cause a lot of uh, deaths. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, it does, in a way. And and I think, let me pick up on, I think, one of the points that you mentioned about the virus and the way in which it keeps mutating. And I think in the book, you sort of sum, it, sum up this quality of the virus. Uh, it makes influenza a form of disease that refuses closure because it is always displaced in the future. So in that sense, although we have this complicated construct of what a pandemic means and that um, that is difficult to, to define, it it always um, just having that that concept, I think, brings us to a kind of level of um, needing to prepare that is for the future. So I was wondering if you could comment on like this 
temporalities um, when we when we're dealing with with the issue of both the virus and microbes and and the pandemic. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, again, I think influenza is a very is a very special virus because it's mutating so fast. So if if you compare influenza with corona, you you will see corona is now muting fast. It's not a, it's not a highly it's not highly mutating. It's it's quite stable actually. So so again, I think the 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 the, the, the vir- different viruses are very very different from each other, and it's important to keep keep that in mind. I think. Influenza is just one example. It's, it's an extreme example of extreme mutation. Hardly any virus is muting, mutating as fast as influenza. Um, and that's what, why it's so difficult to control. And that's why it's so, you know, even now we, 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 we have vaccines and we have antiviral treatments. But influenza is still with us and is still killing a lot of people. In fact, every year influenza is killing between 300,000 and 500,000 people worldwide every year. And that's a huge number. Um, so, so that's why influenza is so special. And that's because it is mutating so fast, because it's changing all the time. It is almost like a symbol of the future, right? And it's very difficult to... So even when you look at how vaccines are being produced, in, in a sense, we produce vaccines, but we have to produce them trying to predict how the virus will change in the future. And so sometimes these predictions are accurate and the vaccine works extremely well for the seasonal influenza virus. And sometimes the, the predictions are not accurate and then the, the vaccine is not very, very effective. So the effectiveness of the vaccine itself changes because in a sense, we're always lacking behind and the virus is always faster than us. Uh, and um, it's, it's very difficult to predict what it is doing and how it is changing. Um, and so on. Now, I think the, the the situation with Corona is very, very different because the the, the virus is new. Um, uh, it's a different type of virus, but but it's not changing as fast as influenza is changing. Um, but but it's interesting to compare Corona with with flu because right now we we have around eighty thousand deaths caused by the coronavirus. Now, when you compare this with seasonal influenza, you have three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand deaths. So I think people tend to underestimate the seriousness of influenza, of seasonal flu, and they tend to overestimate the, 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 the danger of the coronavirus. And I, I, but I think since, um, and I think that's a useful comparison, I think, between the influenza virus and the, the coronavirus. So although your, your monograph is sort of written about influenza in a particular historical moment, I'm wondering mm. if, um, could we extrapolate from that and, and think about what are some, some lessons that we could learn from, um, from influenza um, for this current uh, corona situation? Sure. I, th- I think there are a number of lessons. Um, so, so one lesson for me has always been that there is a tendency to focus on worst-case scenarios. That has been the case in the discussion around H5N1 avian influenza in 2005 uh, until 2015. There's always been a focus on worst-case scenarios. The worst-case scenarios have been used in preparedness plans, um, and I think that's 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 been that's problematic because uh, um, when when you're planning for a worst case, and then some something happens that is not a worst case, um, it gets very difficult to adapt your response because you have not prepared for the kind of event that is happening. So you you could argue today that what we're doing today is we, we're responding as if it was a worst case. 
But I think many people are arguing when you look at uh, the case fatality rate, infection fatality rate, when you look at the numbers, coronavirus is not Ebola. Um, it's, it's, it's killing people, it's killing a lot of people, but it's still, you know, it's still comparable to seasonal flu. So, so, so that makes you then wonder, well, why are we responding in such a dramatic way as we are today? The other lesson from the book has to do with preparedness. And one of the things that I've been pointing out again and again in the book is that, that there is a paradox in the way in which preparedness has worked in the United States. Because on the one hand, you, you have health policies which have always been around there's excess capacity, we have too many hospitals, we have too many beds, it's too costly, we need to reduce, we can't afford this. So there's been a policy of reducing hospital beds, of um, understaffing hospitals, of understaffing public health, of under-resourcing public health. Um, and at, at the same time, you have preparedness exercises. So that's a, that's a huge contradiction. Right? How can you reduce the number of hospital beds while at the same time claiming that you're preparing for a pandemic, which obviously will need more beds and more hospitals and more staff and more resources? And I think you, you, you see the consequences of this today. Um, and, and it's very dramatic because um, in countries where there's a very good public health infrastructure, the quality of care is much better. The system is not overwhelmed by patients. And more patients will survive. And in, in countries where the public health system has been underfunded, understaffed, and under-resourced, it gets overwhelmed very quickly. And then, then it gets very difficult to provide high-quality care, and then more people are dying. I'll just give you one example. Um, so so um, when you look at um, ICU beds, intensive care unit beds in, in Germany right now, Germany is, is at the peak of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, surprisingly, only 50% of the ICU beds are occupied. They're not overwhelmed, even though they have large numbers of patients, which means this is a system that has a lot of flexibility, that has a lot of excess capacity, and that has a lot of surge capacity. Now, compare this with Italy. They were completely overwhelmed by patients. They didn't have enough ICU beds. So, so you, you clearly see that um, mortality rates differ uh, between different countries. Uh, and one of the reasons why they're differing is because different countries have different healthcare systems and some of them are much better than others. Mm -hmm. Right. And if we could sort of go back to the US where um, your study was centered, then what uh, the issue of preparedness that you have brought up, um, the, the problems that you have highlighted, the nursing shortage, the the lack of um, search capacity. I think that's also um, emerging in, in the US. And is that, and although in your book, it seems that people have been structurally preparing for a pandemic for a long time, this problem still crop up. And is this because of a blind spot in the planning or is that a more structural um, issue that needs to be um, looked at? Well, it's, it's a structural issue. It's a political issue. It's a policy issue. It's an issue on a number of levels. Uh, it's definitely an issue in terms of preparedness in the United States has tried to shift from what they call excess capacity to surge capacity. So that means, you know, in, instead of having a hospital with 100 beds, you reduce, let's say, beds to 50, 
meaning you reduce excess capacity uh, and the hospital will be full all the time. So meaning you're reducing preparedness, but then you're trying to substitute this with what is called surge capacity. And surge capacity means, well, you will think, you will make a plan if a pandemic happens and you suddenly need more beds, what will you do? So one plan could be, you know, you just put on tents on a parking lot and, you know, put on beds there. So that's, that's been the, the, sh- the, the, the idea that you shift away from access capacity to surge capacity. Now, obviously, there are a lot of problems with surge capacity. For instance, you know, you don't have the staff to, 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 to take care of all of these beds that you're suddenly adding to, to the system when a catastrophic event is happening. So I think that's been a, a huge uh, problem. Uh, and you see this in a country like Germany or, or South Korea with a lot of excess capacity, they're doing much, much, much better than countries which are now trying to manage the crisis with so-called surge capacity. But uh, the, 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 uh, another issue has been that preparedness in the United States, you, you, need, you need to remember this was um, right after 9-11. And a lot of the preparedness uh, at the time was focusing on bioterrorism preparedness. So huge amounts of funding went into preparing for an anthrax attack, a smallpox attack, some kind of um, bioterrorist attack. Now, you know, these attacks never happened. Um, and a lot of the, the, the resources that were used for um, bioterrorism preparedness are now missing for, you know, public health preparedness, the kind of preparedness that we would need today. So the United States has now a huge number of laboratories doing research on potential bioweapons. Now, these, these, these laboratories are almost completely useless for coronavirus or for influenza because that's not what, what they were supposed to do. That's not what they don't have the capacity to and, and the training and the, the, the skills and, and the knowledge in order to contribute to the kind of response that we need now. So that's, I think, been a very, you know, a, a political a policy issue. I see. And I think it reminds me of a line um, from your book, which went, uh, which was um, in a chapter that was very much concerned about the process of getting prepared to confront um, a public health, um, public health dangers. And one of the consultants they interviewed said that planning is useful and plans are useless. Um, how, do you, how do you put that in the context that you've just described? And is that something that you personally... Um, think is um, is reasonable um, I, th- I I th- you know it's it's a it's it's a difficult it's a difficult question but the thing that has surprised me most in in the current response is that almost all plans that have been developed have been irrelevant and have been ignored by by, by, by most uh, government officials so for instance a, a very basic mm-hmm. idea, it has always been in all of the pandemic preparedness plans has been that you, you, you modulate your response in terms of the severity of the threat, right? So, so that, you know, a, a pandemic, in, in, a, in a pandemic, you, you can have one week, there are a lot of deaths, there are a lot of patients, and then you can have another week, there will be less patients in, in, in one, you know, state or country or, or, or whatever, um, so, so, so the plan needs to be very flexible and it needs to be adapted in terms of what's happening on the ground. So this was, this was inscribed in what was called the uh, uh, 
pandemic severity assessment framework, which has always been a, a key tool of pandemic preparedness. I have never seen this idea being discussed today in today's context, and I'm just surprised. So instead, what we've been seeing is that a lot of countries have imposed national lockdowns. And that is something that I've never seen in, in, in most of these pandemic preparedness plans. They, they were focusing on all the issues. But national lockdown was never a, 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 key, a, a, a key strategy in all of these pandemic plans. So I'm more surprised about how these pandemic preparedness plans have been sidelined, how they have been ignored, how they're not taking up, how we're not using the resources that we have. Mm. Right. And I think that that's a really interesting point. Um, and this is veering a little away from your book, but why do you think national lockdown suddenly seems to be the um, default answer to to managing the, the coronavirus pandemic at least? That's, that, that's, a, that's a crucial question. It's, it's, it's again, a, a, a complex question. Um, I think on the one hand, it has to do with... Uh, um, a huge mistake that has happened very early in this pandemic, and the huge mistake was to not invest into classic public health, into testing, tracing, and isolating people. So I think that that's been a, that's been a huge mistake that has happened in many many different countries, with the exception of South Korea and Germany. So South Korea and Germany, from the very beginning, when they saw that this virus is going to spread, they immediately started developing their own tests. Um, and, and produced them at a, at, in, in huge numbers and started to do testing people. They tested uh, um, both symptomatic and asymptomatic people. And they did rigorous uh, tracing and isolate, isolate, isolation of, of people. And that's the way in which they have been able to, to manage this crisis in a really, really good way. South, South Korea has one of the lowest mortality rates um, you know, in the in the world, and uh, they they have they have never had a, a, a lockdown. So so so, but other countries have been very very slow, um, and they they have not they have not put all the emphasis on testing, and and that's that's uh, that's a huge problem now because when when you're not doing testing, you have no idea what's going on. You don't know how many cases, you don't know how many infections, you know, don't know what's going on in this part of the country, what's going on in that part of the country. Without testing, you don't have the data. And with how will you do any kind of public health decision-making if you don't have basic on-the-ground epidemiological data? So it's, it's, it's a huge problem in the UK. It's a huge problem in the US. It's a, it's a huge problem in many countries because they simply don't have enough tests they have no idea what's going on. They just see patients coming into the hospital and being very sick, and those patients are being tested. But that doesn't give you a sense of what's going on in the entire population. Um, so that you know that's that that's that's been one one of the reasons why then national lockdown became the only way you could respond to this. the The other reason has to do with the way in which this happened. So as 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 you know, the the coronavirus. Outbreak started in China, and the way in which China dealt with 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 the problem is they didn't impose a national lockdown; they imposed a regional lockdown. So that there was this one region around the city of Wuhan, um, and 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 China mainly focused the response on that region and tried to contain the the outbreak. 
and they imposed a regional lockdown. And for other regions, they had different kinds of interventions. So the interventions were, depending on what was happening in different regions, it was risk-based, it was targeted, it was differentiated. Um, there was no, you know, a national one-size-fits-all kind of response. Now, this changed with Italy. Italy was the world's first country which imposed a national lockdown. And ever since, more and more countries have been uh, following that, that route. Mm-hmm. Right. And if, if I may paraphrase, it seems that um, national lockdowns are used as a strategy when testing fails to some extent because um, of their sort of um, inability to, to diagnose and get as much data as possible and, and becomes a one-size-fits-all solution to, to various, uh, to, to managing the, the crisis. And um, this sort of brings me to the issue of... Um, handling a pandemic and the various different actors which are involved. So when we talk about lockdowns, we're spotlighting essentially the state. And when we talk about testing, we're spotlighting the role of experts and so on. But there is a, I think with the media, the government, the experts in the community, they all sort of work in concert when you're talking about um, how we can galvanize uh, people to both prepare for a pandemic and to manage one when we are living through it. So, I guess in in your research, what have you observed about the dynamics um, that come into play when these multiple um, actors um, rub up and co- try and cooperate with each other? That, that that's that's a very interesting that's a very interesting question, and in a sense, you can observe it real time happening now. It's 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 I'm you know I'm I'm myself trying to follow all the events, reading all the newspaper articles trying to understand what experts are saying, looking at how governments are reacting. I'm, you know, my, myself um, affected by the lockdown. So, 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 so in a sense, we all experience the same thing, more or less. There's, there's a lot of information. Many people are writing about this in different ways. Um, there are newspaper articles. There, there are expert statements. There are government officials. There's a huge confusion. There's disagreement. There are people who, you know, make predictions. There are worst case scenarios. There are extreme measures like national lockdowns. Um, there are unforeseen consequences. Now people are talking about um, that this will cause the, the, you know, a great depression. Um, governments are spending trillions of dollars, pounds, and and euros in in order to get the economy going. So I think. Everyone is is overwhelmed by what's happening, and overwhelmed not necessarily by the virus or in you know by by you know the, what what you're seeing in terms of people dying, but overwhelmed by the information, overwhelmed by the fear, overwhelmed by the knowledge, overwhelmed by you know what people are saying you should do and what you shouldn't do, um, and it's it's definitely a context where where people are panicking and where there is fear. And, and, and a lot of uncertainty. And there's, there's in, a, in a sense, there's also kind of a war going on uh, in, in terms of how scientists are disagreeing with each other and how they are trying to push their own position and, and their own agenda. Mm-hmm. And I think when you speak about this uh, feeling of helplessness and being overwhelmed, I just wouldn't sort of... Be- direct attention to a line that really struck me because I feel like we're living through it right now. We're thinking about pandemic 
And the prophecy of a pandemic as uh, destruction without purification, death without resurrection, and a dystopia without utopia, which is uh, what you wrote in, in the book. And that seems to be, at least in the, in the, in the, in the height of the crisis that we're living through right now, uh, quite a, quite a evocative uh, line. And do you think, I think, uh, that we as a global community can find a redemptive moment um, past this crisis? I hope so. I mean, man, many people are saying this is the moment where we can realize what is important and how important public health is, how important so- social security is, how important health is, um, how inequalities are, um, you know, afflicting this world um, so so I think many many people see that this crisis is going to show us uh, some of the problems that have been um, that have been going on for a very long time and that need to be addressed and that have not been addressed including uh, austerity politics and how what we've done to our public health system so that it's not able now to to deal with the surge of patients um, and and I, th- I think that's important to point out to 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 see some of the some of the good things that could could come out of this huge crisis that we're going through today. But my skepticism comes just from a um, uh, you know from from what's happening to our economy today, because when you look at the costs, when you look at unemployment, when you look at the the relief um, um, programs that are being that are being launched, you will see that they're costing a lot of money. They're costing millions and trillions um, of pounds, euros, and and and, uh, and dollars. And someone will have to pay for it. So my, my worry is that at the end of this response, we will end up with a huge public debt, and there will be no money. There there will simply be no money. There will be no money for education. There will be no money for health. There will be no money for environment. There will be no money for social security. There will be no money to address the problems of climate change because we've done something terrible to the economy. I mean, the, the costs of this intervention are, are massive. And I don't think we have any idea, you know, what this will mean and, and how we will deal with this. Italy is, is the second largest indebted uh, country in Europe and has just now just now launched a, a $750 billion Relief program. I mean, what, what this is going to do to, to public debt in Italy is just un, unforeseeable. But I, I don't think you know this will lead to any good, anything good, because it just will make it very, very difficult to to draw the right lessons and do the right things after this after this um, pandemic. Right. So the main concern is the that we will see the lessons but be unable to act upon it because we don't have the resources for that, is, um, if I may paraphrase what, what you've just said. Hi. Yeah, yeah. Be- because some, I think yeah. we're, we're, we're to some extent underestimating the costs and consequences mm-hmm. of the response. Right, and I hope that um, in some ways we will be able to find, I think, uh, a way out of that. So maybe just to end off the interview, um, I was just wondering if in the light of um, your research and, and the um, work that you have um, looked into, what, what do you think are some underread or underrated books that you'd like to recommend um, for listeners who want to follow up on the issues that you are exploring in your book? 
that's that that's a very interesting question. Um, since I'm working like almost full time now on on the coronavirus and on pandemics and on infectious disease, and since I've been working on this for over ten years, you know, my greatest pleasure is to read something that is not, that is not related to pandemics. <laughs> Just as a <laughs> feel free to read that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, it's it's difficult for me to. To, to suggest anything that's related to pandemics just because it's so present. And sometimes I want to escape that unescapable reality. Um, so, so the book that I would suggest is by, by Sarah Pinto. It's called Daughters of Parvati. Uh, and it's, it's a book on madness and uh, mental health in India. It's a book I, I like a lot and I've been reading it uh, a couple of times and it's still something I've, you know, it's a book I admire for for the scholarship and the, for for the carefulness in which it is presenting arguments that are very important. So that okay, would be my I'll, I'll suggestion. Definitely put that. Thank you. I, right. Although I'm not sure how many of us would continue to want to read about pandemics, but I'll definitely want to <laughs> put that on my reading list. Thank you for um, for suggesting it. And maybe since sort of you brought up uh, that you're working on, um, I think uh, researching on the coronavirus right now. Um, what are some if you are willing to share sort of some of the ways that um, you are um, uh, viewing and researching into this issue. So, you know, I finished my work on, on pandemics in 2015 and then I moved on to a very different topic. So it's just now that I've been going back to, to pandemics and to the coronavirus because of these events. I never want to go back and I, you know, I never expected that, 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 that I would get, go back to my so-called, you know, old topic and interest. Um, I'm, I'm just doing it now because it's happening and, and I've been working on this and I've been writing a few things. But my, my, my main research is a very different one. I, I started to work in India and I've been, been working on cancer care in India. So it's a, it's a very different context. It's a different country. It's a different culture. It's a different disease. It's, everything is, is, is quite different. So now I'm, I'm, I'm working in, in mainly in Mumbai and I'm trying to understand what does cancer mean for India and what does India mean for cancer. And I'm, I'm trying to understand how cancer patients access cancer care in India. I'm trying to look at, you know, what, what would an oncology look like that is making sense in an Indian context where resources are very often very limited. So that's, that's my, the, the main work that I'm, that I'm doing right now. Right. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it- Best of luck on this research project, which sounds very meaningful and exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Kadu, for joining us on New Books in Environmental Studies to discuss your monograph, Pandemic Perhaps, Dramatic Events in a Public Culture of Danger, published by University of California Press in 2015. Um, And you've been listening to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, please do check out our other episodes and join us next time. Thanks. Thank you so much, Faiza.